Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Good morning, Vineyard Cleveland, and anyone else who might be joining up with us today. Welcome to our online service. We're so glad you're here. We at Vineyard Cleveland are people who love and follow Jesus. And like Jesus, we want to love people and bring life to the city through everything we do. We are in a series called Simply Jesus. Now, by calling this Simply Jesus, we aren't suggesting that we can simply fix all of the issues in this world, or even that our own personal issues are simple. Life can be difficult and complex, and simple answers usually leave a lot to be desired. However, in this series, we simply want to fix our eyes on who Jesus is because we know that he is life and light and in him is found everything we need to navigate the complex world we live in. So we have been slowly working through the first chapter of John, taking just a couple of verses at a time and really marinating in the truths that we find so that the flavor of the power and the freedom and the life of Jesus soaks into the bones of our soul. So to begin with, I'm going to read John 1, 1 through 14, so that we can know the context for the couple verses that we're going to be looking at today. And then we're going to zoom in close on verses 12 and 13 for the rest of our time. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So I'm going to pray real quick and then we're going to start. Jesus, thank you so much for um, being able to meet virtually. And thank you so much for the truths that you speak to us and through us, God. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. That we can be blessed and changed by who you are and by receiving Jesus, in Jesus' name, amen. So for the first part of this passage, John is really trying to hammer in who Jesus is. In as many ways as he can think of, he builds up our understanding of Jesus as the living word, the expression of God, God himself, the creator of all. Jesus, Jesus as life, as light, as the conqueror of darkness, coming down into his world to bring life and light to his people. And then the story takes a kind of a sad and surprising turn. 
And John 1, 10 and 11, he describes the outcome of this magnificent, unfathomable intervention. The world Jesus created did not recognize him. His own people did not receive him. Why would we reject life? Why would we turn away from light? How could we possibly not recognize or receive our creator whose fingerprints are on everything good that we see and know? What a shocking downer. But today, we get to read the good news, the best news, even more shocking than our rejection of Jesus' goodness. In verse 12 and 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, don't skim over this, okay? Don't read this too quickly. There's so much that is so important packed into these two verses and what they tell us about Jesus and ourselves. So let's start with the big hook, the showstopper of this, of this verse. He gave us the right to become children of God. So if this doesn't blow your mind, you're probably like me. Right. Part of the disadvantage to growing up in the loosely churchiness of the Western culture is that many of us grow up knowing certain things before we have the faculties to really appreciate them. It's kind of like Star Wars. Now, I don't remember the first time I saw Empire Strikes Back, but I knew the truth of Darth Vader long before I understood how shocking that was and how mind-blowing it was for Luke Skywalker to discover this. Growing up always knowing Star Wars robbed me of the experience of that massive twist, the, oh my goodness, that the first viewers probably had. Because I only remember always knowing the fact, I experience it, I experience it as kind of like a, yeah, of course, everybody knows that instead of the life-changing paradigm shift that it was for people who first experienced it at a time when they can actually appreciate it. Now, if you don't believe me, you can look up Star Wars reactions on YouTube. It's a really good time. Um, but in a similar way, being told that Jesus gave us the right to become children of God may seem kind of like a cliche thing to say. And if it seems cliche, then we miss out on how shocking and revolutionary it really is. Because this is the God of the universe, the creator, sustainer, and ruler of all things. When he reveals himself to the people of Israel for the first time, it was on a mountain brimming with fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and earthquakes. The experience was so terrifying that the people begged not to have any more. They're like, please, no more of this. This is the God whose holiness and righteousness are so intense that it's like looking into the sun. It's beautiful and it's glorious, but it's also painful and dangerous. This is the God who poured down fire from heaven, who was shaking the earth, who tears down and builds up kings and kingdoms, who rules over all. This is the God who loves with an undying, everlasting love, who is patient with our weakness, who forgives our sins, who whispers to our weary hearts, who strengthens our tired hands, and who gives us breath and light and food and clothes and literally everything. And we get to be his children. 
like his adored little ones. Like, do we really understand what that means? Do we really live in that truth? Because here's the truth. Because of Jesus, we become children of God in a special way. Like you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Aren't we all God's children? Like you might be thinking of, of Paul when he talked when he was talking to the people of Athens in Acts 17, and he says that we are all God's offspring. But Paul is talking generally of the fact that we've all been created in God's image, which is not what John is talking about here. John is talking about becoming a child of God in a unique way, set apart from others because we have a special relationship with him. We are his family. Now, it's not as if we are just the same person who has received a new title, right? It's not even simply that we've received a new identity. We have been changed in our very essence, our very nature. We were not originally children of God. Because of our rebellious, self-worshipping, God-hating, God-ignoring, sinful lifestyle, Ephesians 2.13 says that before Jesus, we were by nature children of wrath, children who deserved judgment and punishment. But becoming a child of God changes that very nature. Because of Jesus, we aren't simply adopted and being treated like special sons and daughters. We are born into this family. We become actual, real live sons and daughters. That's what John 1.13 means when he says we are born of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. And so just like I inherit things in my nature from my parents' DNA, we inherit spiritual DNA from our father when we are born of God. In the same way that a child is the beginning of who they will become, in the same way you can trace the roots of their personality all the way back to their childhood, we are born of God as seeds of the likeness that we will take on. Through Jesus, we are beginning to be what we will eventually become. I've known many people who, whether they meant to or not, whether they like to or not, end up becoming growing up into some version of their parents. They would catch themselves doing something and laugh or groan. Ugh, I get that from my mother, or I'm just like my dad. It almost seems like they can't help it. It's in their genes, they get it honest. For better or worse, parents pass on their nature to their children. But being a child of God means that there's no worse, right? It's just better and better and better and better. God passes on his nature to his children too. All of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control that are inherent to God's nature are deeply embedded into the nature of all his children. So that means we need to stop being defeatists. We need to stop repeating lies like, well, I'm just lazy, that's who I am, or I'm just selfish, or I'm just whatever your struggle it is, whether it's lust or anger or gossip or pride or lack of compassion or what have you. If you are a child of God, that's not you. That struggle doesn't define you. Your failures don't define you. What defines you is the reality that Jesus has given you the right to become a child of God, 
a partaker of the divine nature, according to 2 Peter 1.4. The Bible doesn't tell us to pretend to be good fighting against our true sinful nature. Instead, we are repeatedly told to embrace our true nature, the nature of our father, the nature that we will ultimately and inevitably grow into. So being God's children doesn't just change who we are. As if that wasn't enough, it also changes our relationship with him. It's bizarre, scandalous even. Like, do you know how brazen children can be when they are comfortable and when they know they're loved and they're with people that they are loved by? There is an expectation. No, there's a demand of closeness. I can't have a Zoom conversation without a bunch of feet and hands and butts floating all over my screen because when I'm sitting still and my attention is elsewhere, my children just use me as a jungle gym. They don't ask, Father, do we have permission to climb on you while you are attempting to have heartfelt adult conversation? They don't care. They assume it's their right because I am their dad. They assume it is their right. The only reason why it's not happening right now is because they're sleeping. And I know that the confidence of that kind of assumption doesn't stop as children get older. Because if I go to my parents' house and I'm hungry, I don't respectfully wait until an appropriate mealtime like a guest. I don't ask for their opinion. Even as a full-grown man with my own house, my own groceries, when I go to my parents' house, I rip through the refrigerator with the confidence of a child in his parents' own home. And that's the kind of relationship that Jesus is inviting us to have with his, with, with the Father, our Father. The confidence to assume his love, to assume his provision, to assume his closeness. Because you see, as much as I love my kids, which is a lot, like I'm a messed up dad. I know that I'm going to scar my children, or I already have, in some way or another due to the many mistakes that I've made or will make, right? And yet, I know that I know that I know that my deepest desire, my deepest heart is the best for them, right? I yearn for it. I ache for it. And I'll do everything in my power to provide the best for them. And that's just messed up, imperfect me. How much more the perfect, all-knowing, all-wise, infinitely loving, infinitely powerful, completely selfless father, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 9-13, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more? That is the heart of the Father that Jesus is inviting us into, that Jesus gives us the right to, the authority to claim as belonging to us. But the scandal doesn't stop there, right? Because you see, God is not just a perfect, good, good, good Father. He's also a king, the king, the king of kings. And being the child of a king means something much more significant than being my child. Being the child of the king means that you receive power, you receive authority, you receive an inheritance. God has made us heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, according to Galatians 4, 7 and Romans 8, 17. 
It's a promise of the glory and blessings that are so great, we actually can't fully understand the, uh, how wonderful it will be. Like the Bible literally says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can fully know what God has in store for those who love him. But, I, but we do know that it at least includes the idea that in Christ, all things are ours. In 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which had been struggling with a lot of infighting as people professed their allegiances to their favorite leaders, comparing themselves with each other and feeling superior about following the right people with the right ideas. Like I'm sure that doesn't sound familiar in this day and age, but bear with me here, you know, older people for an older time. Um, Paul says to them and us, so then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. So because Jesus is the king of kings and because we belong to Jesus, we don't need to try to attach our names to someone else's wagon for a feeling of significance. Jesus is our significance. Being a child of God is our significance. We should not think of ourselves as belonging to one party or another, not belonging to one leader or another. The leaders belong to us. Because if you are a child of God, all things are yours. God moves all things to serve you, to help you, to better you. The leaders are God's gift to serve you with their wisdom, with their folly, with their good intentions and decisions and with their bad. If you are a child of God, God is using all of that to serve you. The world with all of its beauty and blessings and brokenness is yours. John Piper writes, you are not the victims of this world. You own it. It is not your master, it is your servant. From the most beneficial beauties to the most malignant cancers, it is yours, everything in it. And everything that happens on it is working together for your greatest and longest good. Life is yours. Every blink, every breath, every successful plan, every broken dream, God is using for your good to build you up, to better you. You don't belong to life. Life belongs to you. Even your hardships, right? Because what does God tell us to think about our hard times? In Hebrews 12, 6, he says, The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. View hardship as discipline. We've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No matter how dark, no matter how hard a time may be, it is the father's loving attention, strengthening you, conditioning you, helping you grow in a way that is for your deepest and purest and longest lasting good. As a child of God, even death is yours. Death serves you as a focusing agent, reminding you to make most of your time here. Death has no sting for the child of God. Jesus took the sting of death away when he took away your sin. 
Because your sin has been dealt with, death cannot end your life. Death serves you as a doorway to your fuller life. When you get to shed every last remnant of sin and struggle, every last pain and hardship, and you get to be with Jesus forever. All things are yours. The present is yours because Jesus is working in the now. Eternal life begins now as you know the one true God and Jesus who was sent. That's John 17 3. Jesus is using this moment and every other one for your good. The future is yours. You who are God's children now and will go on to be in his presence for eternity. Nothing will ever happen to you that isn't somehow serving your ultimate good and happiness. John Piper again writes, you will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your father. You will be kings and priests. You will judge angels. You will have bodies like Jesus's glorious body. You will be over two cities or five or 10. You will be a temple in the pillar of God. God will be your God and walk with you, his friends, his child. You will sit with Jesus on his throne. You will never sin again. You will know and grow in immeasurable pleasures forever. And you will be the fullness of him who fills all and all. The future is yours. These are promises. Every one of those is a promise lifted directly from the Bible. There are verses for all of those. These are the things that await you. And why? Because you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You are God's children. And the best part about all this is it's not about you. It's not about me. If it was about us, there would be some way that we would definitely inevitably muck it up, right? Some way we would twist it around and ruin it, lose it, or break it in some way. But thankfully, all that we've been talking about, all of this blessing, all of this relationship, all of this closeness, all of this authority and power and privilege and all that is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. We didn't work for the right to become children of God. He gave it to us. We become children of God by his gift, by his appointing us with power and authority to become his children. It has nothing to do with blood, right? It has nothing to do with our ancestry. Our parents' faith can't save us. It has nothing to do with the will of the flesh, our strongest efforts to earn approval, our strongest attempts to be right. We don't become God's children because of the power of our own will, because of our choices, our good choices or bad choices. We are born of God. And because we are born by his desire from his power, we can be confident that nothing has the power to take away or even weaken our status as his children. When you are a child of God, your status as a child is as secure as Jesus himself. And how secure is Jesus? Well, according to Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Nothing can touch Jesus. He's above all of it. 
safe and secure. And that's how secure your heart is. That's how secure your relationship with God is as his child. And so it is with confidence in John 10, 28 through 30 that Jesus says of us, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So nothing can separate us from the love of God, not trouble, hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, neither death or life or angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's Romans 8, 35 to 39. Because our birth as children of God is wrapped in the person of Jesus Christ, and because Jesus Christ is above all things, seated in glory at the right hand of the Father, we can be sure that nothing can shake our status as his children and the rights, privileges, and power that come from that reality. Not even our failures, right? Because Jesus even intercedes on our behalf for the sins we commit against him. When you are a child of God, you can have confidence and certainty that Jesus is always passionately, enthusiastically, and completely for you, on your side, rooting for you, because that is how the Father loves Jesus. And in John 15, 9, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Did you hear Jesus? Not only does he promise to love us with the same exalting, undying fire of love with which the Father loves him, he tells us to remain in this love. Now, I think it's more than a command, although it is a command. I think it's also a plea, a reveal of Jesus' heart. It's like he's saying, don't forget this. Don't think you've graduated from this fact, the fact of my love for you. Stay here, live here, eat and drink and sleep in this reality. The reality that I love you like the Father loves me. Whenever you catch yourself drifting away, moving away from that reality, bring yourself back and know that I love you. You are my child and nothing can diminish my love for you. My Father has loved me like he loves himself with an intense, perfect, unimaginably magnificent love since before the beginning of the world that will go on forever and ever and ever. And that's how I love you. Never forget that my love is yours. Remain in my love. Jesus wants us to be his children so badly that he literally died to make it happen. He wants to pour his love over us so intensely that he crossed an infinite gap to be close to us. But, Despite all this, he does not force his love on us. All of these blessings, all of the love and sweetness and closeness and confidence and power and authority that belong to the children of God are free to all. The invitation is to the whole world, to all who receive him. But the reality is only for those who receive him, to those who believe in his name. Now, to believe in his name means to believe in who Jesus is, who he really is. You can't pick and choose things to believe about him. You can't see, say things like, oh, well, I can't believe in a Jesus who would say this. 
You can't say things like, well, my Jesus only likes this, or my Jesus doesn't like those kinds of things or people. If you're not getting those ideas from the verified eyewitness accounts in the Bible, from the Bible that Jesus himself claimed, testified about him, and the God-breathed teachings that his Holy Spirit moved people to put on paper, then I'm sorry to say it, but you're not believing in Jesus's name. Your Jesus might be a right-wing conservative or a progressive liberal. Your Jesus might have a great opinion about the things all the things and support all of your course, your causes in the same way that you do. But your Jesus cannot save you. Your Jesus cannot make you a child of God. We have to receive Jesus as who he is, the gentle and humble lamb of God who extends tender compassion as he lays down his life for the weak and disenfranchised. The mighty, glorious, untamed Lion of Judah who challenges our perceptions and stands opposed to sin, lies, and hypocrisy. Receiving Jesus and believing his name means that believing and receiving that he is always right about us. He's right about our hopeless brokenness, about our hearts constantly twisting towards evil, about the guilt we have as people who have rebelled against God and turned to our own ways. He is right that no amount of our good deeds, no effort on our part, was ever going to save us or increase our favor with him. Jesus is right that the price for our sin, death, is too great for us, and that the only way for us to be forgiven, healed, and set free from sin is for him to pay the price for us. Jesus is right that following him is going to mean change in our lives, and that we need his spirit working in us to make that change. Jesus is right that we are going to continue to need forgiveness, continue to need to remind ourselves of the gospel, continue to bring these truths up in the forefront of our hearts and minds in every situation. Receiving Jesus as who he is means accepting that we need help. We can't do it on our own. It means that we stop running away from God, turn around and let him embrace us. Because remember how the book of John starts? The creator of the universe, the life and light of humankind came down into our darkness. Why? To judge us? To condemn us? To tell us that we're bad? No, he came to give us life to the full. He came to give us the right to become his children. Which is why John writes, again, later on in his life, in 1 John chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of the perfect, loving, caring, giving, all-powerful, all-wise Father. Children of the King. So how will you respond today? Right? How do you need to receive Jesus today? It might be your first time thinking about receiving Jesus. Maybe you've been resisting it for a long time. Or maybe you've been a child of God for a long time who just needs to have your mind renewed about the way God wants you to respond to a situation as his child. In our church in Vineyard, we've been seeking to grow in the discipline of silence and listening to God. We believe that God is constantly communicating with us and that one of the ways we interact with him is by intentionally sitting in silence, simply listening to what the Lord has to say. Like we're not trying to clear our minds 
Uh, we're asking God the question, what do you want to say to me about this, God? And we're paying attention to the thoughts and the, the images and the things that come to mind when we give God space to fill it. So that's what we're going to do for a minute. And then I'm going to close us in prayer. So God, actually, I'm going to start with, open us in prayer too. God, we pray that you would speak to us, God. Speak to our hearts, Lord, because we know that you came to invite us to become children of God. So show us, Lord, where we need to be receiving that truth in our hearts today. So when I was waiting there, I felt like God really wanted to highlight um, and bring out the truth that this teaching about God and his father heart for us might be difficult for some people because maybe they have a difficult relationship with their father. Maybe they have, they're strange or maybe it's abusive or maybe it's some sort of other horror, right? And that this is not just exclu- exclusive to fathers, but mothers as well, like parents. Because even though the Bible uses the language of father and that's how God refers to himself, we know that God is not a male like I'm a male, right? He's not a dad like I'm a dad. Like when God says father, he is encompassing all of parenthood, right? Because females reflect God's image in the same way that males reflect God's image. Um, and so both of those together are combined in the fatherness of God. And so you might have had some, you might have some difficulty with receiving God as your parent because of the parents that you've had or that you've seen or even that you are. Um, and God wants to tell you, wants me, I felt like God wants me to, to tell you that he is a father to the fatherless, right? That he is the, the perfect image of the father that you never had or the mother that you never had. Like everything that you've seen in the best images that you have in, of parenthood, of mothers and fathers, everything that you've ever wanted, everything that your heart longs for, because I think even when people have a bad relationship with their parent, there's that gap left in there because they know intrinsically what it's supposed to be like. And God is the answer to all of those. He is the one that fills that space. And so if you have a wound there in that, in that parental spot of your heart, God wants to heal you and show you what real relationship with him is like, what a real relationship with the father is like. Um, so God, we thank you so much that your heart for us is for us. God, you are on our side. You tell us you love us all the time. God, you tell us you're proud of us. You tell us that you, we are beloved and that you you hold us up, God. You'd never... You never put too much on us, God. You know exactly our limits. You know exactly how hard to push. You know exactly when to give us a comforting word and when to give us a kick in the pants. God, we pray for people whose whose hearts have been wounded by their human parents. Lord, we pray that you would not that they would not let that be a barrier to them coming to you and receiving your full father's heart, Lord. Your full mother's heart. God, we pray that you would heal them in that place of brokenness that you would show them what it's like to be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God, to be filled with your love. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.